Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, of thy Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of Jesus Christ, this Pentecost Sunday. Greetings. Pentecost Sunday caught a lot of us off guard this year because it's the earliness of Easter, so we don't have our banners up, and I don't think we have the normal things we do today on Pentecost Sunday. But it's still Pentecost Sunday, no matter how you look at it. Jesus said the works that he did were not his own, but his fathers that had sent him... He glorified the Father in every word and every deed. The Son of God became man when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. The workings of God are mysterious indeed. Jesus said before He was crucified that He was leaving, but another was coming. And the other that was coming came on Pentecost Sunday. The third person of the Trinity adds further mystery to the idea of the Godhead. It is, it's mysterious enough that there's a Father and a Son and now a Holy Spirit. These are the ever-expanding revelations that Jesus brought to us as He came here on earth. Now, we may not know all that we will know one day, but what we do know is that God is worthy of our praise and our adoration. Psalm 33 says it this way, Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with the harp, and sing unto Him with the psaltery, an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto Him a new song, and play skillfully with a loud noise. For the word of the Lord is right, and all His works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment, and the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all of the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap, and he lays up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught, and maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and whose people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven and beholds all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation he looks upon the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts. He considereth all of their works. There is no king save by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety, and neither shall deliver any of his great by strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, and upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death, and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord, for our help and our shield is him, for our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let the mercy of the Lord be upon us, according to as we hope in thee. Let us pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for bringing us into your place to worship you. We pray that as we gather together today that you would speak to us, that we would hear your voice, that we would be changed by it today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all the church said...
remain standing for just a moment as I read to you my text from John chapter 14. John chapter 14, starting in verse 23. As I told you, we're working our way from through the book of John, and we'll be using other passages from the other uh, New Testament passages, but we're finishing the life of Christ uh, with John as a basis for doing that. <clears throat> John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken to you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Let us pray. Lord, as we go into this portion of the service where we divide the word, may we divide it rightly. May you speak to me and speak to the people of this church that we might understand and see you in a um, proper light. Lord, that we would understand the importance of the way that we talk about you and the way that we think about you. And uh, may this message help us to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said amen. You may be seated. I was actually trying to figure out what kind of application. You know, when a, when a minister preaches a sermon... Oftentimes he says, okay, well, how can I apply this to Derek Ratliff? Or how can I apply this to Jeff Brownfield or, or even Allie back there? How do I apply it? And one of the ways that we don't really think about application is sometimes the application is that we need to just be thinking the right way about God. Right? Thinking is something we do, right? We think and we talk the words that we say. When we talk about God, when we pray, the words that we use to discuss God with other people, that's something that we do. And so what I'm hoping one of the applications will be is that we will choose our words well when we talk about God, when we're teaching our children about God, when we're teaching people who don't know God about God, when we use our words, when we speak of Him in our home, uh, and when we uh, pray to Him, that we would do our best to be correct in the way that we do it. Amen? Amen. Now, we've been talking about the way home to God as we work our way through the last day of the life of Jesus. And as we come to John 14, Jesus began telling them that He was on the way back to the Father, but that He was not going to leave them alone for the rest of their journey that he was going to do what he was going to send another he was going to send someone to help them and he called this one the comforter the holy spirit he told them that on this road they would need a little bit of help because what they were going to experience and what they were going to go through they were not going to like it they weren't going to want it he was leading them on the path to heaven. In the path to heaven, what is on the way to heaven? Death. You know, Heath and I were talking about gardens earlier today. You know, the seed's in its packet. It's springtime. This is fantastic. And you go, all right, I'm bringing you out into the spring for a little bit. But now I'm going to throw you in the ground and bury you under the dirt. Oh, no, I don't want to do that. Well, the only way that you get to be a corn plant or a tomato plant or whatever is to go into the ground and die. That's what you have to do. The way to the resurrected life is through what? Is through death. Death is on the way home. Death of the flesh daily as we talked about. Self-denial of those desires that are contrary to the will of God. As well as our actual physical death when we draw our last breath here on earth. The only way for us to get to heaven you know, is to die. But as we die daily, our inward man is resurrected, renewed day by day, and the life of Christ is manifest in us and through us. And again, at the end of our natural life, after we're buried, the same Spirit 
The Bible says the same Spirit that raised Jesus up will quicken our mortal bodies. Both paths lead us to heaven in a way. One is heavenly living and the other one is heaven itself. But both paths lead to death first. We don't want to die, but that's, that's the way home. As it says in Psalm 23, as we walk here below in the valley of the shadow of death, we need not to fear evil for what? For He is, he is with us. But how is He with us? You know, Jesus had told them that He wasn't going to leave them, okay? He wasn't going to leave them alone. That He was going to be with them, right? But how was this going to be? How was He going to be with them and leave them at the same time, right? It's kind of difficult. Not going to leave you, never going to leave you, never going to forsake you. Oh yeah, I'm leaving. Okay, so, so it may have seemed contradictory in terms, but it wasn't. He wasn't going to leave them alone. He was leaving them, but he was going to leave them with himself, but himself in a different way. You know, they weren't going to be able to eat with him and lean upon his breast and, and they weren't going to be able to make jokes with him anymore. He wasn't going to be there anymore to, uh, to hug them, to talk to them, to break bread with them. He wasn't going to be there for that. But it's still, he wasn't going to leave them alone. But how was he going to be with them? I mean, you don't know Jesus that way, right? Any of you ever eat meals with Jesus or, you know, take bike rides with Jesus? Sit and have a leisurely talk with Jesus. None, none of us do. We talk to Him and we, we pray. And by faith we believe He hears us. We, we feel things in our heart. We feel that He speaks to us. But, but honestly, He's not here with us like He was then, right? They had a great gift. And that gift was going away. But He wasn't going to leave them without Himself. And He was going to be with them. He's with us today in the same way He was with them after He died. He told them he was going away, but that the Father, everybody say the Father, would send someone to be with him. Now, we talked about this conversation in John 14 was difficult for them because it was really him fleshing out to them some truths that had really never been discussed ever by God in his word. You're not going to find this in the Old Testament where God is explaining how his nature is. There are hints to it, but he doesn't really explain it. He said the Father would send someone to be with them. That someone would be what? The Comforter, which is the Holy, the Holy Spirit, some call the Holy Ghost. Jesus explained these things. He introduced revelation about God that man had never understood. In his words, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father, and from henceforth, everybody say, from henceforth, you know him and have seen him. So this was very confusing. All right, he's telling us about the Father. He's saying he's going home to the Father, but now he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I'm in the Father, and, and the Father is in me, and and. You know, I am with you, but I shall be in you. And me and my father are going to come and make our abode. There's, there's all this going on like we talked last week. Jesus was introducing to them the doctrine of the Trinity. Everybody say the doctrine of the Trinity. He was giving them a glimpse into the mysterious nature of God. Now, we're going to talk about it a little bit more in, in depth, but not too much. Don't get scared. We're, this is not a, a lecture. Maybe we will... Uh, Nathaniel actually was recommending as we were talking about this, maybe this might be a good first topic as our men get together. Uh, God is most assuredly one God. He's absolutely and completely, no joking around, one God. Okay? As we talked about last week, the Shema states, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is... The Lord our God is... One Lord, but at the same time, there exists within the one mighty God a unity of three distinct persons. And I did a lot of reading because, like, when I even say that, I feel like I shouldn't even say that. Okay? And the reason I don't is because the words don't mean today what they meant when they wrote these words. It's kind of like reading King James English, you know? 
or even talking the way people used to talk, right? People might say, oh, I'm gay. I'm just happy and gay. But, but people don't use that word like that today, do they? You can use that word and it does mean that. Oh, what, what a gay outfit you're wearing today. They used to say that. It meant that what you're wearing was happy and it was joyous, but it's taken on a new meaning today. There are lots of words like this that we just don't. We just don't use that way. And the way that these words are used, even when you say that there are distinct persons in the Godhead, these words are not the best words really to define these things. Okay? There are, kids, there are not three people. Because if I were going to say a person, right, I would mean a person. But it's not three people. Everybody says not three people. Three persons are not three people. Now they are in today's society, in today's language, three persons. If I said, there are three persons here today with the magic lucky number, you know, and three of you could raise your hand and you would have the lucky number. But when we're discussing the Godhead and we're discussing the definitions of it, when it says three persons, it does not mean three people. It means persona. Okay, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. There are not three gods who are unified Having the same ideas and the same purpose. That's not, that's not right either. Okay? And there's another thing that's not so too. It's not that there's one God who is like Tim Hatfield. Tim Hatfield is a father, but he's also what? A son. And he's also what? He's a deacon. These are three things that he is, but he's Tim Hatfield. That's not what God is either. God isn't one God who masquerades or acts like He's three different things or says. He's the Lion and He's the Lamb. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. He's the Comforter. He's this. It's not one God pretending to be or filling the roles of all of these things. It's not like that either. It's something in between. One mighty God whose essence is Trinity. And we'll get into that. Now... For the next few minutes, we're going to talk about and explore this together. The concept of the doctrine of the Trinity. In the next part of our series, we're going to talk more about the person that Jesus is introducing, the Holy Spirit. Because for me, that's always been a difficulty. People talk about the Father and the Son, and that's kind of easier to understand. But when it comes to this Holy Spirit, it's a little bit more difficult. What is this? Why? What? I don't understand. So we're going to get to that in the next one. All right? But today we're just going to talk about it as a whole and dial in just a little bit, just enough to where we don't fall asleep or anything like that, okay? You guys ready? All right. In Paul's first words to the Corinthians in chapter 13, his final words, I should say, in, in chapter 13, in verse 14, as he's ending his second epistle, he says this. He says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Right? So it sounds like Paul sort of dividing it up in a way here that is is not redundant. He's not saying the same thing over and over. He's saying, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now these words are not necessarily a theological treaty on the subject of the Trinity, but They are a highlight to the progressive nature of God's revelation about Himself to mankind. Now, when I say progressive, progressive just means it's headed in a direction. Okay? So, the direction is we know less about God in the beginning, in Genesis, when God's telling us things about Himself. But over time, as we walk through the Bible, what do we get to know? We get to know more about God. Okay? So more and more, our understanding of God changes based on what He shows us over time. Now there's no contradiction in what God has taught in the Old Testament and what He has revealed in the New. They're completely consistent. Okay? Now we're familiar with this concept, right? You can know know some information, and the information you know is true, but then you learn more information, and what is that? It's actually more true. Right? Okay, so I made an example. When we moved in our house years ago, um, I took dominion over that yard. We cut down trees and we 
mowed the grass and we cleaned up the yard and we fixed things on the house. So that's a statement, right? That's a statement I made. Now, if later on you're hanging out with the boys and the girls and, and Benjamin says, yeah, I cut that tree down and I mowed the grass and I fixed the roof. Is any of you, are any of you going to accuse me of lying because I said that when I moved into Ballard Road that I did that? Is anyone going to accuse me of lying? Okay, I wasn't trying to take all the credit for it. I was, what did I mean by it? When I said I did, it's a short conversation. Basically what I mean is me and my family, we moved in that house and we worked on it and we made it better. But over time you learn more information. You find out, oh, Benj cut that one tree down and, and Nathaniel cleaned out that garage and the girls did this job they helped rip out the carpet and knowing the more new information doesn't make the first statement I said not true right when I said I took dominion over that or I fixed it up what I meant by was me and my family and the next statement you heard isn't a lie but it is progressive in nature you know the story better now right so it's not not true that I did it right it's more true to say that me, my family, that we did. Does that make sense? That's what progressive revelation is, okay? This is what the Bible does. It gives us more and more information about God over time. Now, looking back with this new information, this is kind of a thing. You know how, have you guys ever heard the, the term hindsight is twenty twenty? Like, you look back, and now with the understanding that Jesus has given us about the Trinity, now you look back in the Old Testament, you go, now where... Did he ever hint to this in the Old Testament? And you look, and what do we start to see, guys? Hey, there are some hints there. Now, if you were going to build your whole theology on those hints, probably would not be prudent. You know, Old Testament rabbis coming up with the doctrine of the Trinity would be, they would be going over the line. God hadn't explained that. But there are hints to it. And we read some of them today in our readings. Both of our readings gave us some hints into it, okay? Our Old Testament reading from Genesis 1, 26. Let us. Everybody say, let us. Remember that? He's creating the world. He's creating plants, animals, stars, everything. And he gets to man. And you know what he says, Sarah? He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, in case you think, oh, well, the King James maybe got it wrong. No, it didn't. These are absolutely plural pronouns that are meant to be there. There's another place in Scripture just like this, if you recall. There's another hint, which we won't talk much about, but I'll get more into this one. Do you remember at, in Genesis 11 when the people have built the Tower of Babel, right? They built the Tower of Babel, they're going to make a tower to go to heaven. And God says this, you can read it in Genesis 11. He says, let us go down and confound their languages. Alright? So those are the only those are the only plural pronoun hints in the entire Old Testament, but they're there. Okay? Now let's look at Genesis 1:26 because I didn't realize what meat was right here, though, that you can miss, and there's a hint here that really is beautiful, but if you if you don't understand the Trinity or you've never looked into the Trinity, you'll totally miss. What God was saying in Genesis 1, okay? Genesis 1, 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over the creeping things of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man. Now, here, this is where, this is where God does a little switcheroo on us here in verse 27. So God made man in his own image. So he goes from saying our image and our likeness to now it says in verse 27, God made man in his image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now, when you go back, Tim, it's one of these things where hindsight is twenty twenty. So you go, maybe there's something there beyond just let us make man in our image. Maybe there's something else. And I found something here. I, I, I didn't read any other commentators talking about this, but I, I can't see how this cannot be a total, you know, look back, wow, this is what God meant, okay? God made man in his image. Now, does that mean man? So, uh, stand up. This here is a boy, but one day he's going to grow up and be what, guys? 
He's going to be a man. So did God make man as in man? As in men? Or what? So only men are made in God's image. And then there are these women things that are running around. Is that, is that what God's word meant? Everybody say, no. You can sit down. God made man. And when it says that he made man, he means mankind. Okay? And we know this because he explains this. God made man in his image. It says in that verse, what? In the image of God made he them male and female, right? So, so the image of God. And so this is something I saw that I thought was interesting. I think this passage is clearly giving us another hint about God's nature. Looking back to Genesis, we now know from the New Testament we might discover this. So let's read it one more time and we'll see what we think. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female. Everybody say male and female. Created he them. Now are you following me? Does anybody maybe know where I'm going? You follow me, Jeff? Nathaniel bought his mother two cherry trees for Mother's Day. Now he bought her these cherry trees because two trees are necessary if you want one day to have what? Cherries. All right, so you can you you can have a cherry tree that never a cherry ever grew on the tree. Now, would that be the full expression of a cherry tree? Everybody say that would not. I mean, what would be the point? I mean, Andy, you you could probably teach this as a well. Sorry, what would be the point of having a fruit tree with no fruit on it? Right? What would be the point of having a cherry tree with no cherries on it? It's not. I mean, uh, technically, it's a cherry tree, but it's not really because why? There's no what? No cherries on it. One cherry tree will never really be a cherry tree. Its full expression can only be realized if there are two trees and the bees to pollinate the blooms. Now, they would still be trees, as I said. But in the truest sense, you'll never have cherry jam without two. All right. Now, it's the same with mankind. God made man, male and female, and he says it here. Mankind in his totality can fully be expressed, not just in man, but Nathaniel, stand up. Man and beetle stand up. Woman. This is what God made mankind in his image in male and female. Men are not made in the image of God and not women. But when the Bible says God made man, he means a man and a woman. You can be seated. A man and a woman. And I really believe that he means a married man and a woman. I really did. A married man, a man that is married to a woman, a family, that's how you represent mankind. If you, Amy, if you were going to try to explain to aliens what mankind is, would you just show them a picture of your manly husband? You'd say, oh, well, you have to understand how this works, okay? Man is really this. It's a man and it's a woman. And when the man and the woman are married and they get together, they produce fruit. The cherries on their trees are what? Children. And so you have a man and a woman. Now when God created man and a woman, the way that he did it was so interesting, Tim, because I believe God was showing us something about himself. So God creates man, and how does he make man? He makes man, he makes, how does he make woman? He makes woman out of Man, so, so when God created man, woman was where? She was inside of him, right? Now, a woman, and I don't want to get too much into reproductive sciences here, but when a woman, when a little girl, uh, even as little, you know, little tiny girls, inside of them are all of their children. Did you guys know this? Like, you don't, they're, they're made, they're right in there. Little tiny girls. Their children are in there. So here was man made by God. Inside of him was what? Eve. And what was inside of Eve? All of her children. Right? So now this is not the perfect analogy as in that you take it all the way, everything physical because God's not a man. But in the creation of mankind himself, God was teaching us something about his own nature. Eve was part of Adam from the beginning, and all men and women that followed came from Adam and Eve. I believe God is teaching us this about his nature. Adam was not before Eve, 
in the sense that she wasn't there, she was there. Now, like I said, the analogy of Adam and Eve is not perfect, okay? But it's, there's a shadow, there's a picture. This is what God will do. He gives us the shadow of sacrifice of animals, but is the, but is the animal sacrifice really the picture of what Jesus... I mean, is an animal a sinless man? Absolutely not. It's not the perfect picture, right? That animal... Uh, even though you probably couldn't see the flaws, they really probably were there on these animals. They weren't really flawless, but they were as good as they could be, right? And so they were a picture. They were an incomplete shadow, a picture. I believe that the creation of mankind is a picture, a little bit of picture of God teaching us about how God within Himself is not singular in the sense that He was alone in heaven. God's not alone in heaven. God has company. All right, I know that's a little bit crazy sounding, but God has company in heaven and He doesn't need you to keep Him company. He doesn't need the angels. God doesn't need, everybody say, God doesn't need. See, if God needed you to talk to and if He needed you to love and if He needed you to keep company, then God would need. But God does not need. So how is it that God doesn't need? Because God's not alone. Now, we certainly cannot fully understand this, but I believe that what we see here is this. The image of God. Mankind is made in the image of God with the glorious fountainhead and the wonder that is the Godhead. Inside of that is love. Everybody say love. Fellowship. Fruitfulness. That's why we long for these things so much. Because without them, we're incomplete. We want to be loved. If, if you uh, went with a survey clipboard and you went around talking to people and you wanted to find out what they want in life, you know what, you, you know what they'll tell you? They want to love somebody and they want someone to do what? They want someone to love them. They want to talk to somebody and they want what? They want people to talk to them. And people also not only want that, they want to do something. I mean, how many of you just want to just, you know, have people bring you Something to drink and, well, I know you might want a little bit of that, but, you know, have an umbrella over your head and, and, and just have, you know, how many people like doing stuff? I do. I like taking dominion over things. I like making things. I like creating. I like doing something, right? I mean, probably what happens when people get, you know, they win the lottery, they go crazy because they're, they're not doing anything. There is, a, there is a deep desire in us, Tim, to do something, to accomplish something, to produce something. So we have these things. We have this desire to love and be loved. We have the desire to talk, to be talked to. We have the desire to produce. And all of that has happened, can happen, and God has these things happening within himself, but we need, see? Man was there, but he needed, he needed a wife. God didn't, God's not like us in that sense. He doesn't need. He has all of those things within himself. We want to love and be loved. We want to... We need to have relationships with others. It's amazing to me that one of the worst things you can do to a guy in prison is do what? Lock him up alone. They're like, oh, he's in solitary confinement. I mean, you would think if you were just reasonable, that wouldn't be such a bad thing. Wow. So even for you hardcore introverts, which I have a few of those in my house, as much as you'd like to do research, Nathaniel, off in some other room, there would come an end to that. We need, we want, we desire, we like to have people talk to you. That's why when someone gets mad at you and they won't talk to you, what are they doing to you? They're punishing you. Why? Because they know you need to talk. I'm not talking to you anymore. That's what's so bad about not doing that. Why? You are taking from them a need that they have. You're starving them. You may be handing them a pork chop, but what they need actually more than the pork chop right now is they need you. They need to talk to you. And until communion is restored, it's an unsettling thing. You forget about what you need until, until you don't have it, right? It's not there. there. There's no one to talk to to bounce those eyes. And you know what we need? You know, the idea of having someone that meet our needs is one thing, but what we really, really like, what, we, what is really fulfilling is to have someone who is an equal. You know, fulfilling marriages are 
people who can talk to each other on equal terms and can understand and have wisdom and like the same things. It's not just a, you don't just want a warm body, someone to, you know, to make you an egg, you know. Could you make me an egg and a piece of toast, right? Elizabeth can do that, right, for me. Thanks, honey, right? But, but Elizabeth is my daughter. She's not my equal. And so the wonderful feeling thing about being married to my sweet, beautiful wife here is that she has a great mind. And I can talk to her and she can talk to me and, and we have good ideas. And our minds together make what? A much better mind. And you might go, what are you talking about? I'm talking about God has given us a picture in our families what our families could be in the Trinity. Because in the Trinity there is perfect communication and perfect love and fruitfulness and beauty in the Trinity. And that is what God was teaching us and showing us when He made mankind. He said, you should love this woman. She's flesh of your flesh and she's bone of your bone. When you get into the uh, theological sharpening points, they say that they say things about God that really sound a lot like really about like us. And God made those pictures for us to learn about Him. All right, now let's quickly move from Genesis to the New Testament here. John 14. Jesus was introducing them that God within Himself, there's love, relationship, fruitfulness. There is one God, but He is not alone. There is one God, but He lacked nothing. He did not need. He did not need to make the angels or man to have love. He did not need to create something to talk to. He did not need someone or something to help Him bring forth fruit. Everybody say, God is all-sufficient. That means God has everything He needs. He doesn't need anything from anyone. As John begins his gospel, he included an introduction that the synoptics did not. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they start telling the story of Jesus. But John starts off telling us who Jesus is. Okay? You know, you read Matthew, and so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, and then there was this, and, and Jesus was born, right? Mark's like this, Luke is like this. But John starts off by going, I think you need to understand who we're about to talk about. In the beginning, he says something that is a theological bombshell dropped from heaven into the Word of God. When you get to John 1.1 and you read John 1-5, through there is a Trinitarian a theological bombshell that has just exploded. And if you miss it, then you miss it. Don't miss it. He's a much older man looking back on a life learning and revelation. He tells the reader who Jesus is in a way that no, nobody else does. In the beginning was the Word. Alright? The Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now, this is, this is an explanation of the Trinity by God. I love these kind of explanations by God, right? God's Word says it. You, you can't say it any better in the Creed. You can't say it any better at the, the Council of, of Chalcedon, which is, I always pronounced it differently, but I listened to someone teaching on it this week, and they said Chalcedon over and over, and so they're, they know more than I do, so I'm going to adopt Chalcedon from now on. But when you read John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. Now we're with these prepositions again. The Word was with God... And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. The word for word here is logos. Okay? It's in the Greek language. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Okay? See these three things. He was. Everybody say He was. And He was God. And He was with God. These are three things, you know, you know, the, the famous philosophers, right? I, I think, therefore, I am, you know, kind of a thing. Does anyone remember who that was? Descartes, all right. I think, therefore, I am. Well, God, he was. So that's an important thing. He was. He existed, right? And in his existence, he was not a God. He was God. Because are there more gods than one? There are not. So, he existed and he was God. But at the same time, and this is what's difficult for us, he was what? He was with God. 
So you see this distinction. He was three things. He was, he had existence. He was God in his existence. And he was with God. Now this is the difficult part. Now wait a minute. If there's only one God, how is he with God? There's a distinction that's happening here within. He's, he's, he's drawing us into the knowledge of the Trinity here. As Jesus had been telling them, I love the Father and the Father loves me. I am in Him and He is in me. Jesus always praised the Father and the Father always glorified the Son. This is perfect and ideal. Jesus honored His Father and His Father honored the Son. The picture here in my my sermon is called Trinity of Love for this reason. Is it pictures what's perfect. What what kind of perfect relationship could Nathaniel or Benjamin and and my sons, what kind of perfect relationship would we have? I would love my son and my son would what? He would love me. I would glorify him and I would honor him and he would do what? He would glorify and he would honor me. Could you imagine if we had relationships like that? Could you imagine if the Robinettes had relationships like that? I know my life would be better. God wants us to honor our children and he wants our children to do what? Honor us. He wants our children always to say, you should hear what my dad says. And my kids, I should be saying, you know, my kids are great kids. Isn't it a neat thing when people love each other and they honor each other and respect each other rather than do what? Rather than talk bad about each other? Here's some application for us. We are commanded to honor, but it is, it's honorable for us. When you meet someone that honors their father, what do you think about them? You think they must be a pretty great guy, right? Why? Because he's honoring his father. This is this beautiful circle of loveliness and beautifulness, you know? So you meet a woman and she tells you how great her husband is. And then you meet the husband and he tells you how great the wife is. And then they tell you what a wonderful family God has blessed us with. Now none of them are talking about themselves. They're talking about who? They're talking about someone else. The father's saying, hey, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And Jesus is saying, the words that I speak are not my own, but him that sent me. Right? And what is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit gets in our heart and it cries out, Abba, Father. What is going on? He's showing us how that all of us should be praising others, lifting up others, honoring others. And if we would all do this, it would be lovely. I mean, Benita, when you tell someone about your church, and you say, I love my church, and I love my friends in my church, what do they end up thinking about you? They think, what a lovely lady she is. She loves her church, and she loves the people of her church. What a lovely lady. We get caught up in this other thing that we want to do that isn't perfect, and isn't lovely, and isn't ideal. But we have a picture of this within the Trinity. There's love and perfection and honor and glory in this relationship. This relationship is the model for our families. It's the model for our relationships with our wives and our children. But it's also the Trinity, so we're going to keep talking on that. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So we remember in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, right, in Genesis, God who made the world. In the beginning, God made the world. So now we're learning that the Word here, who we know later is Jesus, because it says that the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us, right? We know that chapter uh, John 1.3 is saying that Jesus created everything. But what did we just learn about in, in Genesis? Who created everything? God. So what are we learning? Jesus is... Jesus is God. He's not a prophet. He's not a part, you know, one of the subservient lesser parts of God. He's God himself. So how can this be? In him was life and life was the light of men. The light shined in darkness. Darkness comprehended it not. In addition to all that was said, we should know that in him was life and life was the light of men. Jesus said he was the light of the world. He said that he was the way, the truth, and the Life. Jesus was life himself. I'm sure we're not going to fully understand all these things while we are looking through a glass darkly in the sinful veil of our flesh, but I'm certain that these, these verses are power-packed. God's Word is clear that there are indeed three persona that make up the Godhead. Now, this is a touchstone doctrine of the Bible. 
Now, If we read in John 14, which I was just quoting, the word became flesh and we dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, everybody say begotten, of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, there are two words I think are problematic and I think these words cause us to think wrong about God. I'm going to just talk about these two words for a minute, okay? One of them is begotten, everybody say begotten, and the other one is persons, Okay, everybody say persons. You heard me talk about it. We're, we're, we're dialing in just a little bit, okay? Now, the problem with the word begotten is the same as the word person. Both words can lead us away from what the Bible is really teaching and what the church fathers state is true. Now, this is a gigantic subject we could talk about for weeks and weeks, but there is a council at Chalcedon or Chalcedon that really lays this out. I mean, it'd take you a long time to read and learn it, but there's a lot in it, okay? It's the doctrine of the Trinity has never advanced beyond that council, which was in 451, okay? But we're not going to go to that, okay? We're just going to start, we're going to scratch the surface here. One of the earliest church fathers was named Tertullian, okay? Uh, And he's called a church father, but he was not a bishop. He was not even a pastor. He was a layman who was a lawyer, uh, but God had given him words as a gift. He had, a, he had a, a legal terminology. And as he saw heresy creeping into the church, he wanted to be able to sharpen his definitions. Okay? And, and some of you might go, well, why would he want to do that? i tell you why. Heresy gets into the church because we have vague words. Okay? I'll give you an example. How many have ever talked to someone and they say, I believe God's word is inspired. How many, raise your hand if you believe God's word's inspired. I do. And so that may be their way of trying to say, I'm a Christian like you. I believe God's word's inspired, right? But then say, well, but do you believe it's inerrant? Now, what's that mean? That means there's nothing wrong in it anywhere and that God has preserved it perfectly. So they might say, I believe God's word's inspired, but they may not shake their head and say they believe it's inerrant. You see how, like we could say, we are foundation church and we believe that God's word is inspired. But we never put the word inerrant. So what do we do? We leave the door open for what? A lot of crazy thinking. So when we say we believe that's inspired and inerrant, there's nothing wrong in it at all. Your kids are masters at this, right? Did you kick Johnny? No, I did not kick Johnny. Technically, what I did is I held my foot out and he ran by and hit it and went through the window. That's what happened. But I did not kick Johnny, right? Okay. So what you have to do as parents, you have to be legal experts. You have to go, did your foot extend at all? Did it touch Johnny before Johnny went through the window? And then then you got him, right? You're Perry Mason in your own house. Has this ever happened to anybody? Theologically, he, this is what's going on here. When the, when the, the vagaries, I, didn't, I did not touch him. You know, I had a, a stick, of course, and I whacked him in the head with it, but I physically actually didn't touch him. I did not touch him. Oh, well, the stick touched him. That's true, right? Theologically, that's what happens. In these vagaries, these words are vague, and as a result, it's open to a whole lot of meaning. So, so Tertullian, he was, just like Augustine and Athanasius, he was from northern Africa. And Val, this made me think of you. So we have Tertullian, we have Athanasius, okay? We have Augustine, all of them are from where? They're from where you're from, buddy. From where you're, like if we did an Ancestry.com, it's from the continent your genes are from, not mine. Great theologians, a lot of them are from Africa. Nathaniel's wagging his head over here. You can wag it later. They, you know, they, they live in northern Africa. They live closer to where he's from than where I'm from. Okay, I was kind of excited about this. But Tertullian, uh, he lived from about 155 to 240, and he lived before Augustine and Athanasius. And he's the first guy to use some of these words that we use. That's why I'm telling you about him. He, call, he is called the father of Latin Christianity. Being a lawyer, he sought out words to find 
definitions that were very sharp in the natures of God. Now, he, he didn't get it right exactly, but his words that they used are words like Trinity. You, you're not going to find Trinity in the Bible. It's not in there. And then some people have that as a good argument for not believing it because the word isn't in the Bible. In fact, I used to argue this with people all the time. It's not in the Bible. Tertullian is credited with using the word Trinity, substance, and persons in trying to explain God's nature. Although his theology fell short, his words were kept as the church fathers sharpened their explanation of the doctrine. Now, I'm going to just teach you about two words, okay? When the word person is used, and some of you know this, some of you don't, but if it's new for you, it's, I hope it will help you. When we read in, our, in, the, in the creed here that how many persons are there? You guys learned this question, the catechism question. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Right, and when we say this, our minds, it's like when we say Catholic, like I had it taken out of our liturgy. I'm, I'm done saying we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic. Why? Because what's Catholic mean to everybody? It means the Catholic Church. So I put, for a while we had a thing down at the bottom explaining it. Our next liturgy, we're done saying Catholic. Why? I'm just done explaining that it doesn't mean what everybody thinks it means, which everybody uses it to mean. Why? Just be done with it. All right? What does it mean? It means a universal church. Let's say that. So here we are, people use the word persons, and when we do, little kids hear that, and they go, three persons, and they go, oh, okay, you know, this person is talking to this person is talking to that. That's not what it means. It never meant that. It never meant that for them, and it certainly doesn't mean that for God, else we would be people that believed in more than one God, and we don't. Amen? The word person comes from Greek uh, plays. How many of you ever seen the symbol for the theater? Come on, Luke, you're an artist. What is, the, what is the symbol for the theater? It's two masks, right? And the masks, one of them has a big fr- a smile on it, and the other one has a big frown. One stands for comedy, and one stands for tragedy. And they got these, like, long poles that hang off of them. And they put them up to their face. And sometimes in a play, they didn't have a lot of actors, but they had these masks. And the actors would pick up these things and put them over their face. I was listening to R.C. Sproul Sr. teach on this, and he said he went to see a play about Job, and there was, a, there was a mask for God and the devil, and the same guy played God and the devil in the play. It was Basil Rathbone from uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, he played the part of, of God and the devil in a play about the book of Job. Yeah. So those things that they would put up over their face were called persona, Okay. Now, even this example is not exactly the great example, but I'm explaining to you what the word meant. It never meant persons as in people, but it meant a role, okay? But now, what is also not true is that there's one God who plays a bunch of different roles. That's not what the Bible teaches either. But these are the words that are used in the explanation because all we have are words. So they're not persons as in people, and they're not actually just different roles, but they are the words that we use. So we need to be careful. God is not one God putting on different masks and playing different roles. God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost eternally in a three-person form or a three-distinct form of God that makes one God. That's just how it is. All of the examples that I can think of, they don't work. They, they, don't, they don't work well. You know, St. Patrick uh, held up the shamrock, you know, and he said, you see, you got one leaf, two leaf, three leaf. But see, that's not right either because God can't be divided. One leaf is not the Father and one the Son and one is the Holy Ghost. It's not like that. Then another one had an egg and they're going to take, oh, an egg. You've got the yolk and, and you've got this and all together they make an egg. Okay, that's not how it works either. It's not three things that are completely different. God, all of God is all knowing, all powerful, all sufficient. No part was before one part. No part is created, but all of them coexist eternally back in time, forward in time as a trinity. Okay. We're not to think of one God playing different roles. We're not to think of three gods getting together and agreeing. The doctrine of the Trinity is that God exists and His oneness is expressed in His Trinity. Okay? 
Anybody following me? The other term is begotten. Now, if you, if you remember when we said our creed, it says he's begotten, not made, right? It says this in the Nicene Creed. He's explaining that begotten doesn't mean what we think begotten means. Now, the problem to me is why do they use the word if the word doesn't mean what you think the word means? But they do. So here I am explaining to you why we use words that the words actually aren't the best words. Because if I say Abraham begot Isaac and Isaac begot Jacob, right? And Jacob begot, right? Then what are, what are we picturing? Abraham was first, right? Isaac was second. And Jacob is third, right? Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. When it comes to the Son of God being begotten, what is not meant by this is that any, there was God in eternity and then He gave birth to that from Him, uh, at some point, He was there and then the next one came about. That's not what that means. Okay? But it is a word we use. But it says that He is eternally begotten of the Father. And when we say that, honestly, I don't think anybody I read could even explain it. And, the, and they always end up saying what they say. It's a mystery. Now, that's okay with me that it's a mystery. But let's try to understand the mystery rightly. That, as we can. You know... How many of you like ants? I like ants. And have you ever thought about, Luke, you ever thought about what an, what an ant thinks about you? I have. I've thought about what it would be like to be an ant and to think about me. All that, we, all that they, they see, certain, they only see us sometimes, right? Maybe when we're mowing the grass. So they think, well, you know, they must all have these giant loud machines and they like to walk behind them all around the, the property, right? Or, or, you know, they're always wanting to step on our people, right? Uh, or they must be made of this hard material that looks like the treads of tires. Maybe, maybe, maybe they're in the car family. You know, maybe when they grow up, they become vans. And, and, and you know, they, they have a very limited understanding, or if they have any understanding at all, about us, right? So the fact that we don't understand God exactly is okay with me. But what we don't want to do is understand things that aren't true. The Bible tells us things about God that we must believe. Jesus was not lesser than God, created after God. He was the Son of God come in the flesh. And the Holy Spirit that comes is also God. He seems to me to get ignored or talked about less as though He is somehow less than the Father or less than the Son or... And somehow, I've even met people when they talk about Him, when they preach about Him, when they pray to Him, they pray as though they've got to keep, they got to pray a little bit to the Father, a little bit to the Son, a little bit to the Holy Ghost. They have to pay attention to this one. They love this one more than the other one. Folks, this is all ignorant. Okay? The Scriptures are plain about what they do teach, and what we need not to do is add to what they teach by making up things that, the God, that God never said. In the Godhead, God is not bound by time. It is not the same when it says He has begotten. God the Father did not give birth to or procreate the Son. Earthly analogies fail us here. It is part of the darkened glass. Yet the Trinity, there is a Father, a Son. In the Godhead, it does not mean the same as it means in our life as in there is a Father and a Son who has come after. What it does communicate about God is that the same relationship exists forever that the father is God that the son is God just like that like when I say I'm a man and my son is what he's a man God is God there's only one God the son is God and the father is God so this is what it means to that he is his son he's unique in that there there aren't going to be any more there isn't more he has a relationship with God the Father. The Father is God, the Son is God, just like I'm a man and my Son is a man. We also have relationship that cannot change. My Son will always be my Son, and I will always be His Father. Nothing can change this relationship that we have. It's permanent. And so this is what's also being communicated in the Father-Son relationship with God, and in, of course, the relationship with the Holy Spirit. 
Let me read to you a couple things as we, as I'm kind of going to come to a close here. God who at sundry times, this is Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times and in different manners spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom all things, and he made all the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Being made better than the angels, he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they do. For which of the angels that he said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Again, when he bringeth the first begotten into the world, he said, Let all the angels of God worship him. And the angel said, Who makes his angels spirits and ministers a flame of fire? But to the son he said, Thy throne, O God is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens and the works are thine. They shall perish, but thou remains, and they shall wax old as a garment. And as a vesture thou shalt fold them up and they shall be changed, but thou art the same and thy years shall not fail." The entire first chapter of Hebrews is a treaty on Christ himself and the incarnation, which we can't go into, but there's a lot about this, okay? Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time, okay? And his humanity is what hungered, what thirst, what uh, died on the cross. God did not die on the cross in the sense that his eternal spirit that cannot die, died. God doesn't get hungry, he doesn't have thirsty, he doesn't have a body, but God became a man. And we're not getting into all that. But Hebrews 1 explains to us this nature of God, that the things that we do know are said in the Word of God. We just need to be careful when we talk about God. We should use scriptures. We should, we should hesitate a bit to use anything else. I'm going to close with you by... Uh, asking a question from the Godhead about the Godhead from our catechism and then I'm going to read to you some of the Athanasian Creed which I think is the best explaining it okay and then we'll close you guys ready how many persons are there in the Godhead the Father the Son and the Holy Ghost and these three persons are one God the same in substance equal in power and glory this is an excellent distillation of that truth. But when you get to, and when you think about it, and you get to persons, don't think of people. Okay? Now the Nicene Creed, which we said earlier, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God begotten not made of the same essence of as the father through him all things were made for us and for our salvation we believe in the holy spirit the lord the giver of life who proceeds from the father and the son and with the father and the son is worshiped and glorified i'll end with the athanasian creed okay if you haven't heard this you might find this interesting um we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither blending the persons nor dividing their essence. They're taking words here from the, the council at Chalcedon, okay? We worship one God in Trinity, Trinity in unity, neither blending the persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another. And that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. The glory is equal and the majesty is co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has. And the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated and so is the Son. And the Holy Spirit are all uncreated. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all three immeasurable. None is more immeasurable than the other. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not 
three eternal beings, but there is one eternal being. So that there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, and the Holy Spirit is Almighty. Yet there are not three Almighty beings. There is one Almighty being. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there are but one. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but one. Just as Christian truths compel us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so our religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or three lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created, but He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten, but He does proceed from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. And there is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after the other. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their eternity, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their Trinity and their unity in their Trinity. All right. Was that pretty heavy-duty theological stuff, guys? I know. It's important, though. Thinking about God and talking about God. And you might go, after this, I'm still having difficulty. Let's talk about it. We want to be understanding this the best that we can. We don't want to say what the Bible doesn't say. Amen? We don't want to add to Scripture, and we don't want to take away from Scripture. So, um, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love You, and... We would love to understand you more, and I know that's why you've given your word to us. Sometimes it's difficult for us because we are not very smart, or Lord, we're not, we don't know your word very well. I pray that we would love your word, that we would dig deep into it, Lord, and everything that you have revealed about yourself, Lord, would come to light in us, that you would illuminate it, that it would illuminate our conversation and our teaching. Lord, the fact that you are one great and mighty God and that you exist the way that you do and have revealed yourself to us in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a glorious and wonderful thing because in that relationship we see love and communication and beauty and fruitfulness. And Lord, we want that in our lives too. That's what it will mean for heaven to come to earth, for your will to be done. Your will is always done within the Godhead. And Lord, we pray that it will be done everywhere in all of creation, that your will would be done on earth, in all the universe as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray, and all the church said, Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.